Now, we've been talking, we started a series last week about Hebrews, and I'm going to come back into that this morning. But I really felt strongly to kind of summarize the journey. It's impossible to do this, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. But I want you to remember those words. I I think those words are for some people here this morning. How you live your life before God truly matters. It truly matters. If you have found yourself in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to God, God is saying to you this morning how you live your life before God matters. Those were the words over and over and over and over again this morning. So I'm a sleepless person and I don't know how it's going to go. Let's summarize the story here though because I felt God was saying, Andrew, before you get into it, just, just talk a little bit about the story. The story of God is an amazing one. And very often where we live in our world, it's the material, the tangible that we, it's the empirical world in which we have contact with. And so very often all we are focused on and all we think about is what we can see and feel and touch. Yeah? And you'd have people out there who don't believe in God, atheists and others who um, will look at creation and go, well, um, science will say this is how we came into being. Right? In fact, humans are still looking for signs of life. Uh, I was just talking to Peter this morning. He was telling me about a, um, a meteorite that landed somewhere and had some organisms on it. And people said, that's life. The beginning. We come from Mars, right? They've had a thing about the investigation into UFOs in, in the United States recently. And, you know, like, these are, this is life. This is the signs of where, you know, there's another existence and stuff. But the Christian story is somewhat different. The Christian story is about God. We know him to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, One nature, one essence, but three persons. And God always was and God always will be. And we understand God to have created the earth, created the universe. He is the creator of all things. And so God, who is righteous and holy and divine and outside of space and time has created us and our world. He created humankind. God created humankind to have communion, to have relationship. And when God created humankind, God said, there's going to be something special about humanity. Something very special about humanity. They're going to be made in my image and likeness. And so God created us with something of Him in us. Right? There there is something of God within us. There is, we have some connection with eternity. Whether we recognize it or not, there is something eternal within us. And so in the beginning, everything was going really, really well. Humankind were having communion with God. There was relationship with God. We read passages in Genesis where it speaks of walking in the cool of the garden. It just expresses this beautiful relationship between God and humankind. But then, in this garden that we read about in Scripture, and you must remember, Genesis didn't just come out of nowhere. Genesis came from a man named Moses, who was leading a bunch of people called the people of God, Israelites, who'd been in captivity in Egypt, he was leading them out, and they wanted to know where did we come from? What was the story? What's the deal here? And so Moses is explaining to them how everything happened, how everything came into existence. And so in the garden, there was two trees a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, For this relationship, this communion to be healthy and wholesome and good, you can eat from the tree of life, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's the thing. As Christians, we actually have to get out of this empirical, material world sometimes and understand what the Scripture talks about all the time. And that is that there is another realm at the same time as this realm in which we are living. Just go to that first slide of the Apostle, the uh, Nicene Creed, if you don't mind, Jude. You'll have to just quickly find it back there. We, the next, it says there, 
I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. This creed was from the early church who was saying, this is what our faith is about. So there's visible and invisible. So when Adam and Eve in that garden take of that, partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they come to an, a realization, they come to an understanding that they have freedom, they have a will. And that they can, their will can lead them to do things that are contrary to the will of God. Before that, everything had been according to the will of God. They were in communion with God. And so corruption enters into the story. Things begin to go wrong in creation. But something much bigger was going on at the very same time. It's very interesting. The scripture speaks about men, humankind, being um, the writer of Hebrews, which we're going to be looking at in a few moments. The writer of Hebrews says that we are, were made a little lower than the angels. Jesus in, Luke, in the book of Luke says, don't you know that you will be like the angels? Paul in Corinthians says, Human, don't you know that you will judge the angels? So there's something about us that links to this invisible. There's something about humankind that li links to the eternal. Now what was happening in the heavenly realm, if you've read through the scriptures, you will know that chaos entered into the picture. Who was the one who deceived Adam and Eve? Eve, then Adam. It's always the woman, isn't it, Vina? No, it's, we'll edit that out. It's, that's nonsense. So, um, Lucifer, who was from the angelic host, I can't tell you exactly what transpired, but when I read portions of Scripture like that and about our, us being like angels, and the Scripture says that he got thrown out of the heavenly realm because of his pride. And whether or not he saw something within humanity that he was not happy with and brought deception in and brought corruption into creation as a result, he destroyed the handiwork of God and God was not happy with it. God said, you're out of the garden. And God spoke of the serpent who Satan had appeared in and he said, one day your head's going to be crushed. That'll be enough. I'm not putting up with this. Because now what I've got to do is I've got to restore all things. I've got to redeem creation. But because God is holy, and here's what we've got to understand. God is holy. He is righteous. He is divine. He is light of light. There's, there, 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 is, there is an essence of God that, is, that where everything is correct. And because God is holy, nothing that is unholy can come into the presence of God. If unholiness comes into the presence of God, it'll be gone, be burnt up. Which is why you read in the Old Testament and you find these times where, like Moses, God, can I not see you? And God says, you can't. You can't. You can't come into my presence because, it's, 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 because you, you are not holy like I am holy. So because of what happens in the garden, this corruption enters into creation. And, an, and, an, and, the, and a third of the angels, the scripture says, are cast out of the heavens. And here's a big battle that begins. It's a battle for humanity. Because God created humankind. And he loves humankind. And God wants communion. God wants relationship with humankind. But now, because of this, this, this um, fracture, we, the relationship with God is broken. Humanity can't have relationship with God because they have gone against his will. Unholiness is set in. And God can't be part of that. So God's got to find a way to reach them. In fact, if you read the, through Genesis, you find that God gets so, so disappointed with humankind that he says, I'm just going to destroy the lot of them. It's just enough. The, you see, through Satan, evil entered into the world. And God looked at humanity and said, the, the, the evil is so great. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that I ever did this. Except for one family, <laughs> Noah. And so we read about this great flood and and then there's almost like a reset of creation and god then uh, through noah and his family repopulates the earth but god still wants humanity to know that there's an invisible it's not just this visible world there's an invisible world and I, I and, and i'm here and i created you and i want you to have connection with me because there's something of me in you and i want you to know that you're an eternal being so god's got to find a way 
to reach humanity. And what does God do? God comes, as you go through the story, to a man named Abraham. And we know Abraham as the father of the faith. If, if you were in a Sunday school like I went to, we used to sing a song. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And so what they were telling us there was that the father of the faith was Abraham. The father of, in fact, three faiths today. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam come through Abraham. So Abraham, God calls Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to, I'm going to promise you something. I'm going to reach the world through you. You're going to be a blessing. There's going to be, your descendants will be like the stars. Your descendants will be like the grains of sand on the seashore. Right? Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you. And so it's through the line of Abraham, God says, leave where you are and go to a land. I'm going to give you a land, a land, a, a promised land, the land of Canaan. The Holy Land, which we know as Israel, right? So God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to start a nation through you. And through this nation, the purpose of the Jewish nation that come the, is, is to reach the world, to reach all the peoples of the world. So I know I'm trying to shorten this. It's, it's almost impossible. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, God renames him to Israel. Yep. And so here you have this Israelite people. So it's from him that we, his 12 sons, we, we get the, the 12 tribes of Israel from his children. So the Israelites, God's role for them was to reach the world, was to reach humanity. But we know the story. They just got it wrong. They got it wrong, right? But God wanted to have a bridge to humanity so that humanity would know that there's a connection. And so that humanity would know that your life matters. The way you conduct your life matters. Because when your life comes to an end, it's not an, it, it might be at an, at an end materially and physically, but it's not at an end eternally. All of humankind. And so God has, wants to bridge this connection because we are God's creation. He wants to reach us. And so through this line come a priesthood. The Levitical priesthood that was one of the tribes. The tribes called the Levites. And that Levitical priesthood comes and the role of the priests was to act on behalf of God's people. To be the bridge between God and his people. We're going to look at it in a couple of moments. But the whole thing got messed up. But Jesus, uh, God had another plan. <laughs> God said, I, I, I'm going to crush the head of the am I'm going to work because of this fracture in my creation. I'm going to work to redeem all things. And so God comes in Jesus. God comes as a human being. God incarnate. Jesus Christ. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Christ, the Messiah. And so through Jesus, the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus comes and he basically says to the, a lot of the Jewish folk, he said, you guys have got it all wrong. But I'm telling you right now, this is going to change. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. The cross was the victory point. The cross was where the head of the serpent got crushed. And so at the cross, death was defeated. Corruption was defeated. That's why as Christians, we're constantly told you can live a victorious life. You don't have to give in to the way of the world because God's got a different way for you. It's a blessed way. Live his way. And you can do that because of what Jesus has done. So often though we don't live victorious lives because we fall back into the corruption of this world, this fallen world in which we live. So he goes to the cross, on the cross, through his amazing sacrificial love, the enemy is defeated. The enemy, if you read in the New Testament, demons, they recognized Jesus, they did not know why he had come. But he conquered them, he beat them, he pushed them back took away the, the, their powers. They have no power. And then what God did was through the line of Israel and through the cross, God brought about the church. And the church, in Romans you read, has been grafted into the people of Israel. So that's our line. That's our line of faith. And now the church today has the role of reaching the world. You and I. We are responsible for reaching those who don't know God. Why would we do that? Why on earth would we do that? We would do that because we understand that we, are, we have something of eternity in us. 
We understand that there is an unseen, invisible realm right around us. And we have a connection to that realm. And we've connected through, we can connect to that realm through Jesus, through what he did on the cross. So we've got connection to that. Now, the enemy is still around. Even though he's a defeated foe, he is still around. And his greatest desire, as it was, and you see that all the way through the, the scriptures, his greatest desire was to put people off track, was to, was to destroy the work of God, not to let people come to know who God is. Why? Because then they would not be with God in eternity. Let's just, I've said this is difficult. Back up a little bit there because the way you live your life now counts for eternity. The way you live your life before God now counts for eternity. And eternity, the scripture teaches of you're either going to be with God or you're not going to be with God. And the way it words it, it phrases it, uh, being with God is heaven, eternal life. Not being with God, it uses the word hell, damnation, death. And God says, oh, I really want you to get to know me. That's why God tries his utmost through the Old Testament scriptures for this connection, for this connection, for this connection. And now here we sit as the church. And I don't know how many of us have clicked onto that fact that, hey, there is an invisible realm and we have a role. And the enemy is working really, really hard for humanity to not recognize God, not recognize that eternal realm, not recognize that invisible realm. And we really have to get to grips with the fact that in Jesus, everything has changed. His death and resurrection has changed absolutely everything. And we are now the vehicle of God. And as we live for him, one day, hopefully we'll get before him and, 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 and we'll be welcomed in. Well done, good and faithful servant. But... We have a role as the church now, and so our line, the, the faith line, the history of our faith goes back to Abraham who was called by God. Hebrews, like I said last week, was written to Jewish Christians living in Rome 2,000 years ago, struggling under the persecution of the Emperor Nero. Fact, okay? Now, Judaism was recognized as a, as a religion in, in um, ancient Rome. Fact, go look it up. And as a religion, they had some protection from the authorities. But the problem was, because Christians were being persecuted, some of these Jewish Christians were being persecuted as a result, and they were abandoning their faith in Christ and returning to Judaism, which is why the letter of Hebrews got written. It was why this individual wrote Hebrews to these Jewish Christians. So the author of Hebrews writes a spirit-inspired letter to these Jewish Christians, giving them the reasons why they should not give up on following Jesus. So what we discovered last week, as we read in the first few verses of, of Hebrews, was that God had spoken. It says God spoke first through the prophets, right, in the Old Testament scriptures, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, and then God spoke in these last days through his son Jesus Christ. And for us, as 21st century Christians, we learned last week that the reason why people stick to Jesus, the reason why people don't give up on Jesus, the reason why people don't give up on his church is primarily because of a deep abiding love for him, because of a relationship with this extraordinary person. Because of Jesus, I have restored communion with God. So we discovered that. We also discovered that God had spoken through this. His Holy Scripture. And so hopefully you're with me in the fact that we came to the conclusion that this now has authority in our life. God still speaks to us through this by his Holy Spirit. So when God says something like forgive, don't get angry, what do we do? Do we forgive? Do we get angry? Do we not do we let the sun we don't let the sun go down on our anger? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You're all good Christians because this has authority in your life. That, okay, so you're with me. All right, okay. Well, hopefully, okay. Now, the problem is for many followers back of Jesus back in the first century, as well um, suffering under that persecution, as well as so many 21st century Christians, and what we're suffering from today is the pushback of the culture. Back in the first century, people were giving up on God. And here in the 21st century, we've got people giving up on God. We've got people doubting his faithfulness. Okay. Have you ever been in a place where you've doubted God's faithfulness? 
Okay. You've experienced something which has caused you to ask questions. Is there a God? <laughs> Are you really there, God? Can I really count on you? Maybe you've prayed for something. You know, a lot of people do this. They pray and pray and pray and they want God to do something and then it doesn't happen. You pray for a breakthrough in your marriage. You pray for redirection in the lives of your children. You pray for a healing. You pray for a job. You pray for a financial turnaround. You pray for someone to spend the rest of your life with whatever, something, right? And you just haven't seen God answer those prayers, at least not up until this point. Or maybe something really painful has happened to you and it's just thrown you in your journey of life. Very often the death of a loved one throws people. A, a romantic breakup, you know, your heart gets broken, that throws people. A betrayal, you know, maybe you've been through a bankruptcy or something awful has happened to you or someone that you care about, you know, in some way. And, and it's just left you wondering, God, are you there? What is, what, you know, like, what is the point of me following you? You know, I don't understand. What do I even believe? You know, God, are you the Lord of this messed up world? Do you really answer prayer? Can I rely on you? Well, I want to look at this today because we're talking here about the issue of God's faithfulness and reliability in these passages of Hebrews. And, and, and God's faithfulness and reliability has not only to do with our lives now, but it has to do with the even bigger issue of our salvation. God's faithfulness and reliability has to do with the bigger issue of our salvation. Now remember I said God is wanting to reach humanity. And as Christians, we've hopefully come to that place where we've we've accepted Jesus, surrendered our lives to him, and 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 we, we're trusting for eternal salvation. But let's say that you're a person that's considering whether or not to become a follower of Jesus, right? You're deciding. You're weighing it up. Should I follow Jesus? You've heard the message that God loves you. You know, God loves you so much that you've heard it. He sent his one and only son into this world. He went to the cross and he, through that work, he took on the sin of humanity in his death on that cross. You've heard the good news of the gospel that if you just put your trust in Jesus and all that he's done for you by dying in your place, by taking on your, your sin, every wrong, every bad thing that will happen in your life, by taking that on and rising from the dead, by you trusting in him, God forgives you of your sins, that he brings you into a relationship with himself. You've heard that. And so you've heard, let's say, that to find God, you, you simply have to surrender to his son. You have to surrender to Jesus. But you might ask yourself, if I take this step, if I ask God to forgive me and I surrender control of my life to Jesus and I make a choice to become one of his followers, what then? How do I know that between now and the day that I die that I'm going to keep following Jesus? Because I've just heard this story. There's a visible and an invisible realm going on. There's a story of the people of God that's been going on for a long, long time now. I've heard the story about the enemy. I know that the enemy has been defeated and now I'm putting my trust in God. But how do I know? How do I know that I'm actually hitting in the... How do I know that I'm going to be saved, that I'm going to be with God, that I'm going to have eternal life? How do I know that I'll persist in the faith? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we, um, we can be good, but we can be bad too. Yeah? Lots of things that we've failed at before. Might be a marriage, might be... An important relationship could be a job, studies. You know, we all have this experience in life where we get really excited about something for a while, really excited about a person for a while. You know, I was, when I first met Debbie, woohoo, baby, man, you're the one. Da, da, da. I was really, you know, like amped up. And I still am. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes we can lose interest, right? We can give up. So how do I know that if I embrace Jesus, that I'm going to continue to embrace Jesus next year? How do I know that I'm going to continue to embrace Jesus in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, when I'm old, or when I'm disappointed, or in those moments when life doesn't make sense, or when I'm ten tempted? How do I know that I'm not going to give up on Jesus, that he's not going to give up on me? Can we really take hold of who God is and never let go until the day we die, and then beyond that day through all eternity? Well, here's what we're going to see around the book of Hebrews today. Okay, so if you've got your Bible, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And I'm just going to ask you to hold on tight because I know a lot of this is just going to go, what? All right, let's just read it. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, 
He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And then the, writer, the author says, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said. They, they swear, they make an oath that confirms what they have said. And, and it puts an end to all argument. And then the, the author says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, does anybody want to tell me what's going on? Some of you are probably wondering what is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, quite simply, in this passage, probably the best way to summarize what the writer is saying over here is that I want you to know, that's what he's saying, God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. So in this passage of Scripture, the author of Hebrews is giving an exposition of the story of the life of Abraham. And it's drawn from the Old Testament book of Genesis. You go read about Abraham in Genesis. And the author is saying that if Abraham could keep believing, that if Abraham could stay on his journey of faith despite everything that he went through, the author is saying, then who, whoever you are, you too can keep believing despite everything. Can keep going despite anything that might even come your way. That's what the author is saying. God's promises never fail. So we're going to look at this quickly. Okay, let's, let's, let's go to this next slide. God's dealing with Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham. How many of you know the story of Abraham? Nope. He, had, uh, he had many sons, he had many sons, had father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Yeah, so many of you, Craig knows the story. Okay, God calls Abraham. He's 75 years old, and God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to gather all your people and all your possessions, and I want you to give up your family and your life and everything in this ancient city of Haran, and I'm making a promise to you. I want you to, I want you to go to the, the land of Canaan. So Haran was in ancient uh, uh, Iraq, and God says, I want you to leave there and go to, to what we know as the Holy Land, Israel. And so God promises Abraham that he is going to um, bring about a new nation through him. Abraham is 75 years old. And God promises Abraham and his wife Sarah they're going to have a son. And Sarah laughs about it. She's already like, I'm past my prime. What is, well, you know, what's the deal here? But God makes a promise. And Abraham obeys God's call and he journeys to the promised land. Gets to the promised land, and you, if you read in Genesis, there's a lot to the story. But the point that I want to make is that Abraham waits 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. 25 years. Can I ask you this morning, do you think that Abraham ever wondered whether God's faithfulness had failed? Do you think that Abraham struggled with God's faithfulness? How many of you would say that faith is easy? It isn't in this fallen, broken world in which we live. I don't, I, 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 it's, it's, I don't think it's like you make a choice to believe, like I make a choice to believe in God and then I'm never going to struggle with, with doubt ever again. There might be people like that, but I'm certainly not one of them. You know, for me, and I think for many people, faith is a fight. Faith is a struggle. Faith is a battle. It's not easy to continue to trust God when everything that you've prayed for, everything that you've hoped for hasn't happened. Right? Where are you, God? I know some of you are sitting here this morning and that's your prayer. God, where are you? Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. It was only when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. There's a baby on the way. God fulfills his promise. Isaac is miraculously born. But when Isaac grew up, Abraham was commanded to then go and sacrifice this long-awaited precious son. Like, what? God's testing Abraham. 
Do you think that Abraham questioned God again? Do you think he struggled with his faith in that moment? Do you, do you think he was wondering like, God, if, I, if, if, if you take Isaac, what about this promise of multiplying you know, my descendants? You know, that they're, they're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. You know, surely that, that's not going to happen. Well, Hebrews tells us that God gave Abraham and through Abraham, God has given us three things to bolster our faith. God in his merciful, self-giving love strengthens us with three encouragements to help our faith along the way. So the first thing that God gives to Abraham is an oath. God gives Abraham an oath, right? Let's read from Hebrews chapter 6. God makes his promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And the author says, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. That's you and me. We are the heirs of the promise. He confirmed it with an oath. Okay. Here's the idea here. Why do people make oaths? So that you believe them. So that you believe them. I make an oath because, because I want to guarantee what I'm saying or guarantee what's going to happen is going to happen. I want to guarantee the promise. So we live in a world where people will say to you, I swear to God, I swear to God. I swear on the lives of my children. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like that? I swear on my mother's grave. Anybody say anything like that? You know, in, in ancient Israel, they used to say, as the Lord lives, I will do this. And in more recent centuries, people have put their hand on this Bible and said, I swear by the Holy Bible. And so the idea in, that, in making that oath is that you, you don't just have to count on me, but you're counting on something more sacred than me. So God wants Abraham and his heirs, namely us, to have absolutely no doubt that he would keep his promises to bless us. He wanted us to trust his promises. So he secures his promise with an oath. An oath. The problem was that there was no authority greater than himself. There was no one truer than himself. So God swore by himself. So what God does here is he gives us a double guarantee, a promise and an oath based on his own character. That if we surrender control of our lives to Jesus Christ, we will persevere in the faith till the day of our death and beyond. And to strengthen our struggling faith, God not only gives us an oath, but he also gives us, secondly, a hope. God gives us a hope. Let's go back to the Bible. Verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in other words, by an oath and uh, a promise, these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, Here's what we need to understand about Christian hope, what it's all about. What is Christian hope about in the Bible? Hope is not a feeling addressed to our emotions. Hope is a decision addressed to our wills, right? Hope is a decision to believe God for a good future, whatever's going on in the present. That's hope. To believe God for a good future. Hope says, I have a future. Hope says, I have a blessing that's coming to me. Hope says that what God has started, he will complete. Hope says that what God has promised, he will fulfill. It's very interesting that the author of Hebrews calls this hope a firm and secure hope. In verse 19, he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. We'll get there. So hope in the New Testament is the opposite of what we mean today when we say, well, I hope. Well, often we say that I hope something will happen. I hope I get that job. I hope my health will turn around. I hope I pass that test. And so when we use the word hope, we mean something less than certain. When we use the word hope, we kind of mean a wish or a desire. Very often that's the way we use the word hope. But a hope in the New Testament is a confident expectation. A confident expectation. Listen, folk, that's what's going to get you through your disappointments. That's what's going to get you through your pain. That is what's going to get you through your grief. That is what's going to enable you to keep on believing. It's not a wishful hope. It's not a false hope. It's not an unrealistic hope. What will get you through is a firm hope, a secure hope, a certain hope. We live in a world that's full of false hopes. And immature religion nurtures false hope. 
I'm really strong about this in this church, that we don't buy into the whole prosperity gospel nonsense. Because that's really prevalent today. And some of those prosperity gospel messages nurture a false hope, a fake hope. It's an immature religion. So the, the prosperity gospel will say things like, oh, yeah, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. The prosperity gospel will say, well, if you, if you have enough faith and you believe hard enough, well, then you're going to be prosper financially. The prosperity gospel will say, hey, man, if you're a good person, uh, you're not going to suffer. God's going to protect you from tragedies and pain. And so immature religion always nurtures false hope. It's an unrealistic hope. And sometimes we listen to that stuff. We watch TV or wherever. We listen to those messages. And it begins to fill we, our minds. And so we've got a, a mental checklist of God's promises. We think, oh, that's what God's going to do for me. And actually it's wrong. It's an inaccurate checklist. And sometimes it's to the extent that you could experience disastrous consequences regarding your faith. Because you've got this over here and you've heard that preacher and you've gone, yeah, that's what God's promised me. And, it, and it's not correct. So, for example, if you believe that God has promised you a happy marriage and you don't have a happy marriage because you're single or you're married and you're just unhappy, well, if you believe that God's promised you a happy marriage, to that extent, your faith will probably, you're gonna, it's going to be shattered. You might throw in the towel. You might just go, I thought God was going to give me a happy marriage. I'm not going to follow God anymore. I'm, I'm going to get out of this marriage. I'm not going to have hope in, in Jesus anymore. Because you believe that God hasn't kept his promise to you because you filled your mind with the fake hope. And there's a lot of fake hope out there. There's a lot of false hope right now. And a lot of that fake and false hope is causing people to give up on their Christian faith. So how do you get a firm hope at a time when we're tempted to give up? Well, the author says to strengthen our faith when we're tempted to give up, God firstly has given us an oath and he's given us a hope secondly. And thirdly, he's given us an anchor. He's given us an anchor. In verse 19, the writer says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The author's using quite a helpful illustration over here. If a boat drops its sails and if it turns off its, you know, a ship turns off of its engines and it's not tied to a dock, what's going to stop it from drifting away? An anchor. An anchor. You drop the anchor so that you don't drift off, right? So the author is saying, I want you to imagine a ship named Christian and you being rocked back and forth in the seas of life. What's going to stop you from being capsized? What's going to stop you from being washed out to sea? Well, what the author is saying over here is that Jesus has gone behind the curtain. Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies. He's saying, man, there's a chain that's extended upward into the heavenly realm. You can't see where it is except by faith. But at the end of that chain is an anchor which is secured in heaven. And how do we know it's anchored in heaven? Because Jesus carried that right into heaven. We, we know, as we've just recited in the, in the Nicene Creed, that he is there seated right next to, on the right hand of, of the Father. So we know where that anchor is. My anchor is in him. It's hooked around the throne of heaven. It's, it's immovable. So the author of Hebrews is trying to get, get this idea across that... that um, God's promises are not going to fail. God's promised to make a way for us to connect. He's, nothing is going to stop that, that which God wants to do. So can we trust God's faithfulness when we're tracking through life and our prayers don't get answered? The writer of Hebrews says, absolutely yes. The writer of Hebrews says, just look at Abraham. He gave Abraham an oath. He gave Abraham a hope. He gave him an anchor. Okay. Now, let's just change gears and move a little bit further on because the author tells us to look at the way God dealt with the priesthood. So the author of Hebrews says, God's promises are going to stand faithful. What God has, has promised to you is going to come into being. And you've got Abraham as an example. And then the author moves on and he, he says, let's, let's move on from Abraham and look at the, let's look at the priesthood. 
Now, the, the priesthood is a major theme of the book of Hebrews. And there's this contrast between the earthly or the Levitical priesthood and the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, some people say. I say Melchizedek. So let's look at God's dealing with priesthood. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 7. Oh boy. Okay, let's read this. We have this. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, right? So the writer is saying if perfection could have come, if our connection with God could have come through the earthly priesthood, the, the Levitical priesthood, and that priesthood was established by the law given by the prophets. The author says, well, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood has changed, the law must change also. So what the author is saying over here, there's been a priesthood that's been established. But what's going on with this other priesthood? Because if this other priesthood has any role to play, then that means everything's got to change. And then the author says, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. So we're talking about a different priesthood here, and this is not the, the tribe of Levites. This is a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. <laughs> for, and then the author says, For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, the tribe of Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses had said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Anybody know what's going on? Okay. To understand the complex arguments that the author of Hebrews is presenting here, we've got to grasp the failure of the Old Testament priesthood. Now remember at the beginning I said, God has created. And I, I choose to believe in God. I don't choose to believe that there isn't a God. And so because I'm a Christian, I believe that there is an eternal realm. And I believe that that realm has a very big impact on my life. Yeah? God, God is tracking alongside humanity. Things have gone wrong. The, the, Satan has come. He's been cast out. Things have gone wrong on the earth. But God wants humanity to know that I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Something about you has me in it. And you have an eternal trajectory. And I want you. It's important that you live your life according to my design for it. Because when you get to eternity, I want you to be with me. Not not with me. And so God comes and says, I'm going to be with you. And he creates the Levitical priesthood. This Levitical priesthood are there to serve the, the people of God, to be the bridge, to be the connection between the people of God and God's people. And God even actually dwelt amongst them. If you read about the tabernacle, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, and you couldn't just go into that space. It was an empty space, but it signified God's presence. But God, the, he has a great example of the invisible being in a visible space. Even though you couldn't see the invisible, it was in the visible space. So sometimes when priests went in there and had not sanctified themselves and they were in an unholy place, what would happen with them when they went into the Holy of Holies? They died. So what they used to do is tie a piece of rope around their ankle and the dude had better had be right with God because if he died in there, they'd drag him out. Nobody was going to go in there. True story. Read it. Okay. Anyhow, this priesthood gets messed up. That's what we're looking at here this morning. Okay. Part of what we're looking at. So there's some complex arguments and we're going to look here at the failure of the old testament priesthood i want you to get into the mindset quickly of the recipients of this letter <laughs> imagine you're a jewish christian in the first century and this letter comes and now you're reading this letter and you've got to ask yourself why were these first century jews uh, who were believers in jesus tempted to doubt god's promises why were they being tempted to to give up on god give up on the messiah and his faithfulness well one big reason and this applied not only to Christian Jews, but also to faithful Jews living at the time of before the first century. Many faithful Jews were doubting what was going on. They were going, like, how are things supposed to work out over here? Because God's established this priesthood. And, and, and what's the deal over here? Because this priesthood that God designed was supposed to represent God to us. And the priesthood was supposed to represent us to God. A, the priesthood was a body of men. Served as a bridge between people and God. But it had failed. It had failed. The bridge had utterly collapsed. So let's just look at Old Testament history just for a moment. Let's get that little next slide up there. I've got a little diagram over here. So remember Abraham. Remember Abraham? What happened with Abraham? God called Abraham and said, Abraham, through you, salvation's going to come. 
Through you going to be the connection. I'm going to reach humanity, right? And so Abraham, go. I'm going to start a nation through you. I'm giving you a promise of, 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 of descendants in the faith. More than the stars in the sky. And I'm going to give you a son, you and Sarah. So Abraham's there. Through Abraham's line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. And his sons, one of the sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, was named Levi. And when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and captivity, God said to Moses, the Levites are not going to get an inheritance in the promised land. All the other tribes will get land. The Levites won't. Their job is to serve me in the temple. The people will bring, and part of what the people bring will be given to the, to the, to the priesthood. So the Levites were, that was the line of priests in the Old Testament. And so Aaron, who was part of the, the line of Levi, it was through him that the priesthood begins. Right? Remember, Aaron was with Moses. Moses was his brother. And Aaron, his first two sons were Nadan and, and actually it was Abihu. I, I hate this corrective text stuff. It's gone and changed it to abide. It's Abihu, right? So Nadab and Abihu, they got taken out. Because they attempted to approach the Holy of Holies, and the scripture says, with unholy fire. <laughs> and it's interesting because if you read in Levitic, uh, um, Exodus chapter 10, the very next verse, it starts talking about priests and, and um, intoxication, drinking too much wine. It says, and so the thought is that these two sons of, of Aaron got intoxicated and went into the Holy of Holies drunk, into the presence of God, and they got, they got taken out, right? Because God is holy. Nothing unholy can come through God. That's why we can come to the Father because of Jesus. He, we are made right with God through what Jesus did. That's another for another sermon. Okay, anyhow. So the priesthood goes to Ithamar. I hope you're keeping up. Ithamar has some descendants, Eli. Eli is one of the prophets. And then Eli has two sons, Phineas and Hophni. It's really interesting that, again, you know, you just see the, 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 the corruption of humanity. These two guys sexually abused women. It's amazing to me that like 3,000 years ago, you still see, you know, today sometimes we think it's a modern phenomenon where priests assault and, and, and people in that way. 3,000 years ago it was going on. But God brought judgment. God ended it. Eli refused to deal with his sons. God ended the line of the priesthood through Ithamar. So there's only one priest line left, Eleazar. Eleazar, for with Eleazar through that line with the priesthood, everything seemed to be going well for a period of time. But then a couple of centuries before Jesus, the line of Eleazar ended because the Seleucids invaded the Holy Lands. Go back in history, you'll see a few centuries before the time of Christ. The Greeks invaded the Holy Land. And a Greek king named Antiochus decided to change that priesthood and they appointed a priest outside of the line of Eleazar. And what happened with many of the Jews was they said, this is not happening. They rejected that government-created priesthood. And in fact, they isolated themselves. They just withdrew. They isolated themselves in the desert. They became known as the Qumran community. It's very interesting that it was out of that community that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. They, they were looking at the, what was going on in Israel and they're saying, this whole thing is a fake. It's Ill illegitimate. The whole temple system is corrupt. And so now you have these new government-sanctioned priests who take over the temp temple system and these new government-appointed priests, government priests land up becoming the Sadducees who put Jesus to death. Now all of that is to say that too many Jews in the first century were looking at all of this and going, What's the point? This is the, there's something desperately wrong over here. This priesthood bridge that God was supposed to have built has, has collapsed. It's, 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 it's finished. People were thinking that God had failed. And so they wanted to know how they could keep relying on God when the way that God had set things up was totally broken. Well, the author of Hebrews says that God had always had in mind a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. God always had in mind a better priesthood than that established by Aaron from the tribe of Levi. That was limited. All they could do was carry out God's instructions. All they could do was help 
assist people in worship, but they could not ultimately reconcile people to God. And so the author of Hebrews tells us about Melchizedek. Just like the author does a deep dive into the life of Abraham, he does a deep, di- deep dive into this figure of, of, Ab- of Melchizedek. Now I'm going to close. I'm going to be a little bit over, but I'm going to close with a few reflections on what was so great about Melchizedek. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham. Remember Abraham? He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. This mysterious figure of Melchizedek represented an entirely different kind of priesthood. And we encounter Melchizedek way back in Genesis 14, long before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. And when you read about Melchizedek in Genesis, normally you find all these genealogies around. There's no genealogy for him. Nothing is said of his death. And Abraham actually gave him tithes. He gives tithes to him which implies that he was superior to Abraham in rank. And if he was superior, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, then by extension, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham's descendants. Okay, all you good Christians, you know now that who's the father in the faith? Father Abraham had many sons. He's the father of the faith. But now what we're reading in Genesis is, hang on a sec, God used Abraham to bring the salvation story into the earth. But there's somebody, something else going on over here. Who's this Melchizedek guy? Remember, Christians consider Abraham to be the spiritual father of all those who have faith in the one true God. It was Abraham through this, that this promise of salvation came. It was Abraham who had faith in God that he would fulfill his promises. But if Melchizedek is there and Melchizedek is more important than Abraham, hey, we better sit up and take note. What's going on over here? Melchizedek, the scripture says, was not only a king, it says he was a priest as well. He was a king and a priest. Now the fact that Melchizedek was a king and a priest is highly unusual because in the Old Testament, God typically separated political authority and religious authority. They were kept in two different spheres. That meant that the king could not do whatever he wanted. The king was always subject to God's law. In other ancient Near, Near Eastern cultures, um, when uh, the king said what had to happen, that's exactly what happened. In ancient Israel, the prophets were appointed to call the king to account. Not just to support the king in whatever he did, but to call him to account you'll find the prophets often getting the kings to bow their knee to God. So in the Old Testament, it's really clear that God separates religious power from earthly political power. Actually, the Bible recognizes that that's a toxic combination. The corruption of men and women, God sees that and he makes a sharp distinction between politics on the one hand and religion on the other hand. But here's what we need to take note of with Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. His name, the name Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. His title, the king of Salem, means king of peace. So here you find this individual in Genesis with the dual role, where he's able to reconcile the justice of God, which is the business of a king, with his mercy, the business of a priest. God had not decreed that for his people, but here in Melchizedek we see that. And There is only one person who can ultimately be entrusted with the role of both priest and king, and that is Jesus Christ, to whom Melchizedek pointed. So God has always had a plan to make sure that everything works. It's only Jesus who is free from the corruption of sin. It is only Jesus who is free from selfish ambition. It is only Jesus who always uses his power to serve others rather than himself. It is only Jesus whose heart is full of mercy and kindness. And it's only Jesus who is safe enough to be king of kings and a priest forever. And so God always had a plan for a better priesthood than the one that he had established through Levi and Aaron. And that is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so what God promised through Melchizedek was basically a total system upgrade. 
Because this bridge had been broken, and that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say to these Christians, because this thing has been broken, God's going to have another plan. And the other plan is, for a, is just for a revamp of everything, right? Um, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find um, that kingship, covenant, law, sacrifice, priesthood, tabernacle, all of those things were intervo- interwoven with each other. That's why if any little thing had to change, it affected everything. But the author of Hebrews says that what happened with Jesus was a total system upgrade. This was not a, this is not a patch. This is not a soft software update. This is like a total like new hardware, new software, new operating system. Jesus is not a little tweak in the system. And so what you find in the scripture is that Jesus, the coming of Jesus is a revolution. His kingdom and his priesthood has changed everything. God has always promised a better priesthood and God's promises never fail. And so Melchizedek, back in Genesis, was ultimately a signpost. He was appointed to the person of Jesus. Way back in the beginning, and in Genesis, at the beginning of God's creation and redemptive story. The person of Jesus. Here's what we read in Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Cherie, you stood up here this morning and you used those words that he intercedes for us. And here we read it. He lives to intercede for us. We might ask how we can keep on in our faith when our prayers don't get answered in this life. We might ask, how can I keep following Jesus when my heart gets broken? How can I keep following God when I don't see any breakthroughs in my life? How do I persevere in faith when God's promises seem to fail? Well, our hope and our confidence is in the simple fact that He is able. The author of Hebrews calls us ultimately back to the person of Jesus, and he's saying that Jesus is able. So rely on Him. Hook your life into Him. Trust in Him because He is able to save you completely. And that word completely means that he's able to save you to the uttermost. And I really want you to get this today. I know we've gone over time, but I want you to get this today. He is able to save you to the uttermost. In other words, there is no circumstance that could hit your life. No problem, no attack, no betrayal, no health problem, no loss or grief grief that Jesus can't get you through. If all of your wildest fears came true, if what you dread actually happened to you, if the diagnosis turns out to be cancer, if your spouse leaves you, if your child's life falls apart, if it's Alzheimer's, if if the prophecies from the scientists about climate change are true, if another pandemic hits us, if all of our wildest fears are realized, Jesus will still save us to the utmost. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Get this this morning. God came in the beginning. And he is wanting us to know that there's something else going on. Would you understand that there's something else going on? It's not just the natural, empirical, tangible, physical world. There's a spiritual dimension. And I want you to understand this. Because you've got something of me. And I need you to connect with me. And the only way that you're going to be able to connect with me is through my son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and has begun to restore all things. And he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, through Jesus, because he always lives to intercede for them. So when I consider all of my weaknesses, when I stand here and consider the weaknesses of this church, when I stand here and think of the ways that the culture is working its way into our lives and into the lives of our children, I might stand and wonder, how can we still have hope and confidence as Christians? Well, the writer says in Hebrews that Jesus is our holy, indestructible priest, and he is standing and praying for us in heaven. And the prayers of Jesus are always heard. They don't bounce off the ceiling. He is in the holy of holies. And so this morning, folk, that is my hope and that is your hope for your children and your grandchildren when you start to see them drift from God. That is our hope for our lives and that is our hope for this world. Our hope is not just in our prayers, but it is in the prayers of this wonderful person whose name is Jesus. And I know I've tried to, I said it was going to be a messy one this morning. So I hope you've got something. Let's pray. Father, I, we are over time. And Lord, I just, I just come to you. And, and I, I, oh God, my, my heart's desire, my heart's desire 
is that we would grow, that our Christianity would not be a flaky, superficial Christianity, but God, that we would come to a very, very, very deep realization that you are real and that you are reaching out to us. And for those of us who have committed our lives to you, you're going to see us through. And we can have faith because we've got examples in Scripture from people like Abraham. We've got examples in Scripture from people like Melchizedek. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would be a people who look around and begin to see with your eyes and not our own eyes. That we would not be hemmed in or crushed by our situations and our circumstances, but we would know that you have all things in your hand, that you are working towards an eternal plan, an eternal destiny, that this which you have created is being restored and redeemed and one day is going to come to an end. That one day each one of us is going to stand before you, whether we've surrendered our lives to you or not. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would come to that place having known you, having trusted you, having relied on you. So God, would you, by the power of your Spirit, work in each heart and each mind. In Jesus' name, amen.